So obviously we're continuing on here this morning in our study in John 19. We're looking at the crucifixion uh, of the Lord Jesus, and, and there's a lot here. Uh, I, I know the Sunday school teachers at times come to me and say there's so much in what they're trying to cover, and they only have a short amount of time. Um, I don't know that I'm coming back next week, but I kind of presume that I am, so I feel I can go a little bit slower, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. And, and there's just a lot we really need to consider. I, I have overheard, you don't think I pay attention, but I have overheard a little whispers uh, that uh, on the pace I'm going that next Easter or next, next April uh, at the celebration of the Lord's resurrection, that's going to come and go on the calendar uh, before I get Jesus out of the tomb. Now... <laughs> I don't know. I haven't got him in the tomb yet, so maybe I, I don't. I don't know. I just know there's a lot here, and, and we're really looking at the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Uh, therefore, it deserves our real careful attention. Where you have the Father, God the Father, taking His dearly beloved Son out of His great mercy and compassion and love for sinners such as you and I, and sending Him to the cross to be the sin bearer, the only substitute the only substitute able to deal with our sin, the only substitute that can bring reconciliation between God and man in order not to compromise God's justice or his holiness. So it's the innocent Lord Jesus Christ who stands in our place of us, our, our place, we who are guilty, and God punishes him so he doesn't have to punish us. And Christ stands in that place willingly, freely, out of his tremendous love for us, out of his tremendous love for you and me, Bearing in his body the, our sin, uh, the, the wrath of God against our sin that, that we deserve. As God's love and mercy and holiness and justice all meet in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. So again, the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of love ever expressed. Uh, again, the only one who can atone for sin. Uh, the, the greatest gift of love freely given to those who would repent and believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he again is willingly and freely offering upon the cross. And in that same event, obviously, you have the greatest act of human wickedness ever seen. Uh, the innocent Lord Jesus Christ uh, abused, uh, mistreated, murdered by evil men and devils. But as I read out of the psalm, God's sovereign. And God takes the greatest act of human wickedness and in his great power and in his great love and in his great grace he turns it into the greatest demonstration for good uh, and, and again the grace of god towards men towards those who would repent and believe upon christ those who would look upon him and again it's the event that we're looking at the event of the cross we're looking at the cross we're looking at christ and the person of the lord jesus christ that's why paul or that's why john writes he, he writes with that one single intent these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name, John 20, verse 31. That's John's purpose. That's why John does everything he does. That's why he writes the way he writes. Every thought, every paragraph, every word is to draw us to the majesty of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to draw attention to him. Now, when first look, as, as I've said, when you, when you look at the cross, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot there that would glorify Christ, but... But there, there's much here. Uh, it's not just a narrative. It, it's the exposition uh, of the glory of the person of Christ. And, and again, as horrible as the cross was for the person of Jesus Christ, his physical torment, his, his emotional torment, the spiritual suffering that he undergoes there, uh, the utter humiliation of being hung naked, the terror, the pain, the horror of the event, and 
the intentionality of them. And as I told you, the whole uh, thing of the cross was to exact uh, the most pain possible with the least loss of life. That was the purpose of the uh, of crucifixion, to make it agonizingly, excruciatingly painful upon the victim. So on that uh, first blush, it doesn't appear to be anything significant that's a uh, uh, glorious in the event, but in God's kindness there is. Because again, in God's, in God's power, God's grace, God's wisdom, uh, he takes what men have done at their worst, and he's going to exalt his son to the highest level. And again, that's what John wants us to see, not the wickedness of men and devils. He wants us to keep our focus on Christ. And what he does through the pen of uh, John here, the Holy Spirit does through the pen of John here, is in the events of the cross, the death of Christ on the cross, there are four aspects that he brings to the, the surface here uh, for us to look at that magnify Christ and magnify uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the whole wor- John wants the whole world to see these things, not the, not the evil, not the wickedness. No, see Christ. See these four specific events that he draws attention to. And, and again, here they are. No, number one, it's through the Scripture. Uh, John's drawing attention to Christ through the Scripture. He's doing it secondly through uh, with reference to the sign that is over Jesus' head. He, he does it thirdly by showing the sympathy that the Lord has for those who are, are, are around the cross, even in his greatest hour of uh, uh, suffering. And then he does it with reference to the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty of, of God, the sovereignty of Christ over every aspect of the, of the crucifixion, even in his act of dying. And, and we'll look forward to, to those. We, we've started to work our way through that list a little bit. So let's just go back and just real quickly review. Remember I told you the first way that God puts Christ on display is through the fulfillment of of Scripture, Old Testament prophecy uh, concerning the Messiah. All the prophecies concerning the the Messiah and his suffering are fulfilled in every detail from a variety of different Old Testament texts. I gave you some of those last week that prove beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is the Christ, right? He's the Messiah, the Old Testament uh, prophets uh, foretold would come. And the, the fact that all of the Scripture is fulfilled uh, proves the fact that God is absolutely in control over all these events. Everything is happening not by the act of wicked men and devils. They are participating. But everything is happening and being carried out according to the predetermined plans and purposes of God, which again gives us confidence in the Scripture that God is sovereign. Uh, he's sovereign. Everything that Scripture says is true. It is the word of the living God. Again, the sovereign who knows everything that's, that's going to happen. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this. Be assured, recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is the sovereign of the universe. Take a breath. Turn the news off. Open your Bible and realize that God is the sovereign of the universe. Wicked men and devils do what wicked men and devils do, but God is in charge of the outcome. And everything is focused towards the exaltation of the person of Jesus Christ. That's where history is going. People wringing their hands, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what we're going to I know what's happening because I read the book. Jesus Christ is the issue. Stop and think about all the politicians in the world and today. They come and go. Put yourself in New Testament, in first century New Testament. Do you think they had some really good guys leading them? No. 
pretty wicked and evil men, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that happens in time is to the exaltation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's sovereignty rules over all. On a national level, it, it is an amen. It's a national level, international level. Listen to me, it's on a personal level. It's not unique to me. I didn't say it, but I coined it first, but you've heard it. If there's one random molecule in the entire universe, one random molecule in the entire universe, then God is a limited ruler. He's either over all or he's not. Well, he's over, no, he's over all. His sovereignty rules over all. And so again, everything that's happening here is because it's exactly the guy who knows, the man who knows the beginning from the end, who's declared everything before it happens, he's saying, look, this is what's going to happen. And it's all coming, all focused in on this one person because God's word is true and Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now, we worked through that heading uh, uh, in some detail uh, previously in, in the fulfillment of Scripture, verses 16 through 18, and then in 23 and 24. The second thing that uh, uh, John does here to point to Jesus and that glorifies Jesus through the events of the cross here is the inscription, the sign above, uh, uh, above his head that's been placed there by Pilate, the Roman governor. And we spent some time looking at that last Lord's Day also. But let me just kind of dive in here, as I like to do. And let me just pick it up and just kind of run through it a little bit on verse 16. Just a few comments. John 19, verse 16. So then, they, then he delivered him to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Verse 19. Then Pilate wrote the inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription, many of the Jews read it, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. I, I told you, Pilate, from his perspective, he writes this out of human vengeance, because he loathes the Jewish people, and especially the Jewish religious leaders. He knows that Jesus is innocent, that he's committed no crime, He's been blackmailed by the Jewish religious leaders into murdering Jesus. And so in an act of mocking sarcasm, he puts this inscription above the head of Jesus, identifying Jesus as the king of the Jews. Jesus the Nazarene. And as I told you, Nazareth is a no place, nowhere little village. So in Pilate's perspective, here he is. Here's your king. He's nobody from nowhere place. And at the moment, not only is he from a completely insignificant place, but he happens to be beaten so much so that he's hardly recognizable as a man. Horribly treated, disfigured by the beatings, brutalized. And in three different languages, Pilate identifies the one who's dying on that cross. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. The chief priests of the Jews, remember I told you no longer clean by God, uh, they protest, verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write uh, the king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Verse 22, Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. So again, I told you that Pilate writes out of human vengeance. He's taking a jab at the Jewish religious leaders and then the Jewish people in, in general. But the truth is, again, God is the one who's superintending over the events of the cross. God is directing the affairs of the cross. And he is using wicked men to declare his glory and to declare the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that proclamation, that inscription that Pilate has over the head of Jesus is really the father protecting the glory of his son, declaring his son's innocence there at the cross. There is no charge. 
there's no crime listed because Jesus has committed no crime. And the reality is Jesus is the king of the Jews. But the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people have completely rejected him. Now I told you without a shadow of a doubt, unmistakably, Jesus is being crucified. Why? He's being crucified because he is indeed who he claimed to be. He's being crucified, crucified because he's the king of the Jews. And, and the flat issue is, the bottom line is, is the Jewish people don't want him. They don't want Jesus to rule over them. They, to rule over him. They don't want Jesus as king. Therefore, they rejected him as total. And again, in the context of the story, in the context even of the day in which we live, people don't want Jesus to rule over them. The entire thing is utterly irrational. Completely and utterly irrational because Jesus has proven over and over again that he's no mere man, but that he is indeed God come in the flesh. But yet men in their sin, they continue to reject the truth. They continue to reject the truth concerning uh, the person of Jesus Christ. You remember that uh, when, uh, uh, before Jesus was even born, an angel, an angel shows up to, uh, an angel Gabriel shows up to Mary to declare her that she was going to possess, uh, she was going to have a child, and the child uh, that she would bear would be one who would, who would uh, possess the throne of his father David forever because he's a king. At the birth, right, the men came from the east, the Magi, and they said, where is him who is born king of the Jews? That's who he is. Earlier in the week, right, at the beginning of the week, before the, uh, the crucifixion of the Passion Week, uh, just days before, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the, the multitude hailed him in his triumphal entry as the son of David. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So there's no mistake, right? That's exactly who Jesus is. And again, the issue is men hate him. Then and now. That's it. That's the issue. Men do not want Jesus to rule over them. That's the issue because men love their sin. John 3 and 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That, my friends, is the issue. There is no other. Men will not have Christ rule over them because they love their sin and they hate the light. Again, verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription, also put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus and Nazarene, the king of the Jews, therefore the inscription many of the Jews read in the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So again, this is again God the Father proclaiming, protecting the glory of his Son, making sure that the entire world knows the reader of Greek, the, Greek, the reader of Latin, the reader of Hebrew could not fail to understand who exactly is hanging there on that middle cross on Golgotha. Again, it's the hand of God at work. It's God at work ordering matters so that uh, the will of Pilate uh, for once uh, overrode uh, the wishes of the malicious Jews. For once, Pilate gets a spine and, and stands up and says, I've written what I've written. Right? He's not going to change. And, and the reality is that he's not going to change because God's not going to allow him to change. God is declaring the message that's written over the head of Jesus there at the cross. God's going to cause it to stand. Because again, who is Jesus? He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews, and he is the king of all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. That's why he was born. That's why he came in a time. That's why he lived. That's why he was crucified. But the book of the Revelation, 19th chapter, says what? He's coming again. Right? He's going to come again. He's going to come and rule over the entire earth. He's going to put down and crush all of his enemies. Therefore, men, all men, would be wise to humble themselves. 
All men would be wise, humble themselves, take care and bow before this king and come before him while he still offers mercy to men before he comes in judgment because when he comes in judgment, it will be too late and no man will stand before him then. So pay him the honor that's due him now, the tribute that belongs to him. Love him, obediently follow him. Give yourself to him in total and fear him properly because he will again one day return. The one who has been despised by the world, the one who hangs on the center cross there, he will come and he will take for himself the great power that belongs to him and he will reign and rule and utterly put down and crush every one of his enemies under his feet. He will come, he will sweep aside and crush all earthly kings and governments and he will become the king over his kingdom Uh, the kingdom of our God and Father, and he will rule and reign until every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord, the Lord of all. He is the absolute sovereign of the universe. Verse 23, the soldiers, therefore, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, and every part, uh, every soldier, a part to every soldier, and also a tunic. And now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. Verse 24, they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, more fulfilled scripture. Ignorant, wicked men acting unknowingly, fulfilling the word of God. Again, it's the power of God that's on display here. He uses these godless men to glorify Christ. Now the third issue that John points out Uh, that draws our attention and glorifies the person of Jesus Christ is the demonstration of the compassion of Christ there at the cross. The demonstration of his compassion. Verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but uh, there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and disciples, whom he loved, standing nearby, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Again, verse 25 says, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but. So that conjunctive, uh, uh, that adversive conjunction, but, really introduces a, a sharp contrast to the story. Between the callous indifference of the soldiers who are gambling for Christ's clothes after they've murder, murdered him by crucifying him, the sneering and hatred that's going on uh, against the Lord by the religious rulers, by the Jewish people, and e- even by those uh, passing by and even from one fellow there on the cross. So again, there's a sharp contrast that's being introduced here between the callous indifference of the multitude, again, Roman soldiers and such, and now the compassionate care of a small group of people who love Jesus. The soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, right? Important phrase, by the cross of Jesus. They're near enough to the cross that Jesus can speak to them and they'll be able to hear him. Now again, what you have to realize is that Jesus, although innocent, he has been put to death as an insurrectionist. He's been put to death as one who's committed a crime against the the government of Rome that is worthy of death. And he's one who has hated by the religious establishment of the Jews. Therefore, for you to identify yourself with the person of Jesus hanging there on that cross is a risky thing. 
to identify yourself with one whom the Roman government uh, sees to be a traitor, to identify yourself with one whom the Jewish religious leaders consider to be a blasphemer is a risky thing. But they love him. They love him, and they're standing by the cross of Jesus. J.C. Ryle points out this. He says, love is strong as death. And even amidst the crowd of shouting and Jews and rough Roman soldiers, these holy women were determined to stand by our Lord to the last and show their unceasing affection to him. When we remember that our Lord was condemned as a criminal, uh, particularly hated by the chief priests and executed by the Roman soldiers, the faithfulness and the courage of these holy women can never be sufficiently admired. When all men but one forsook our Lord, more than one woman boldly confessed him. Women at short, at short were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Again, you remember when Jesus was uh, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were 11 men with him. One had already left, one of the original 12, that would be Judas, who already departed because he was in the process of betraying him. But when Jesus was arrested, 11 men were there with him. And at the Lord's arrest, all these men did what? Forsook him, right? They fled out of fear. No one stood with him. Peter watched at a distance when he was taken, when Jesus was taken to the Jewish religious leader's home, the home of the high priest, uh, along with John. But then Peter, to his shame, denied the Lord Jesus on at least three different occasions. And here the Romans have executed an innocent man. He's suffering. He's dying on the cross. And gathered at the foot of the cross are four women and one man. Now, some people think there are only three women here, partly because of the how, how the text is written, but, but, but I think they're forced. Let me identify them for you. There were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Now note this, that he does not, John doesn't even give her name. Obviously, we know it's Mary. But the fact that he does not give her name here is important, and I'm going to come back to that just in a moment. Standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, that's number one. And his mother's sister, that's two. Mary, the wife of Clopas, that's three. And then Mary Magdalene, that's four. So four women. Standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Now, it would be safe to assume, I think, <clears throat> that she has come from Jerusalem, uh, to, from, uh, to Jerusalem from Galilee at the Passover time with the other women to uh, come and uh, minister to Jesus. At the time she's older, she's probably somewhere around 48 years of age. Uh, the Lord was born 33 years earlier uh, to Mary, when, probably when she was a very young uh, uh, lady, a young uh, woman, so probably somewhere around 15 or so. There standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother. Now the truth is, you don't hear much about Mary throughout the Scripture at all, uh, especially after his infancy and childhood. <clears throat> Excuse me, obviously we see very early on in the um, public ministry of Jesus when he's performing his uh, first miracle when he turns the water into wine, but after that she kind of uh, lives in the background. But here she is at the hour of the, her son's suffering, the supreme hour of her son's suffering. Uh, the world has cast Jesus out, this child of her womb, but there she is by his side of the cross. Now, I don't think we can accurately uh, conceive nor put into words uh, the heartache that this dear lady must have been experiencing at this moment. I mean, the scene is unprecedented. 
the suffering of her son horrific. Yet because of her love for him, she stands near him. The disciples may have deserted him. His friends may have forsaken him. The nations cast him aside, but his mother loves him. She was near, obviously, at his birth, and here she is near her son at his death. Behold the love of a mother for her son. By this time, it's assumed by most that Joseph, uh, her husband, is dead. He's disappeared off the gospel records uh, long before this. Mary, again, is the only one who stands in her family, the only one who stands near Jesus. The Lord, I think, has cared for her because the brothers and the sisters of Jesus at this point don't believe upon him. In fact, they think, according to uh, Mark 3, that he was insane. And although her heartache must have been great, there's no record of hysteria. There's no demonstration of sorrow declared to the point where she's falling uncontrollably in anguish on the ground. You don't see that in any of the gospel accounts, any of the evangelist accounts. Apparently in the midst of the scene, the mocking crowds, the thieves taunting from the cross, the soldiers callously occupied with the garments, mistreating her son terribly. Here's his mother Mary taking it all in and suffering in unbroken silence. She just stands there by the cross of Jesus. She demonstrates her love for him. She demonstrates her courage not to deny being associated with her son. And listen to my words carefully. She has great reverence for the Savior. She has great reverence for the Savior, Christ, her Savior. And the fact that John doesn't even mention her name, I think, is entirely significant. In fact, if you were to look at uh, uh, Matthew and Mark's version of the story, they don't even mention that she was there at the cross. She has a very low profile in the entirety of the New Testament. Nowhere is she ever given the title the Virgin Mary in the text of Scripture. Nowhere in the Scripture is she ever referred to as the Queen of Heaven. Nowhere in the Scripture is there any kind of teaching about her virgin birth. Not her being giving birth as a virgin, but she also being a virgin, making her also sinless. You won't find that in the Scripture. You won't find anything in the Scripture about her bodily assumption, meaning that she didn't die, but she was just taken right straight into heaven. All this is Roman Catholic teaching, which is false. This is not what the Scripture tells us regarding her. And most certainly there's nothing in the Scripture, uh, the text of Scripture anywhere, about her being the co-redemptrix or the co-redeemer with Christ. There's nothing in the Scripture anywhere about her playing any part in man's salvation as some kind of uh, second intercessor between us and God or Christ and God. If that was true, if any of those things were true about her, which they're not, then you'd expect to see some evidence of that in the New Testament. There'd be some kind of teaching about this role of Mary in the New Testament epistles, but there's not. So again, the silence of the New Testament epistles indicate that Mary plays no significant role in redemption. Mary is not to be venerated as an object of worship. All of that is Roman Catholic heresy. And men have been pointing, out this, pointing this reality out for a long time. Commentators 
pointing out the fact for a long time that, that uh, the fact John doesn't even mention her name is entirely significant. And the fact that John doesn't mention her name, her name really, that should put an end to and bring a strong condemnation for the whole Roman Catholic system of Mary worship. There's nothing that elevates Mary to this level in the Scripture. There's nothing in the Scripture that Mary's the patroness of the saints, or the protector of the church, the one who can help others. On the contrary, what you do see in the Scripture about her is obviously she loves her son, but also in the Scripture you see most certainly Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior, and she knows that. When the angel came to Mary to let her know that she was going to bear a son as a virgin without a human father, Luke records that interaction. So why don't you just put a mark there and we'll come back. But go uh, back to Luke. And I want you to see this for yourself, in part because I want you to see it for yourself, and then uh, because somebody just asked me this very question just, just a couple of weeks ago. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to dive in at verse 30. Luke 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name, his, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Excuse me. Verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Drop down to verse 46. Uh, I want to get to verse 46, but actually I'm going to pick it up in verse 39. Just uh, next verse. Now at this time Mary rose uh, and went with haste uh, to the hill country, to the city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When he came about, Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth knows, right, that there's something special about this child in Mary, right? The child in Elizabeth knows there's something special about this child that is in, within Mary, that Mary is carrying. Verse 43, Elizabeth continued on. She says, How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul exalts in the Lord. Verse 47, And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. 48, For he has regarded the humble state of his bond slave. And behold, from this time all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. When Mary says here in verse uh, uh, 48, from all generations 
uh, all generations will count me blessed. And, uh, and Elizabeth, back in verse 42, blessed are among women are you. There's absolutely nothing in either one of those statements that they said with reference to God elevating Mary over the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in what either one of them said that elevates Mary above any other believer or above any other sinner. There's nothing that either one of them said that she was one who would be that one who blesses all the people. Mary understood she was the recipient of God's blessing. She wasn't the dispenser of God's blessing. And in both of these statements from Elizabeth and Mary, blessed among women are you, or from this generation all from from this time on all generations will count you blessed both of these women were just acknowledging the fact that the great privilege and honor that mary had been given to carry in her womb the greatest person who had ever been born that being the lord jesus christ there's nothing in the text of scripture anywhere that would lead us to any other kind of understanding other than the fact that mary was just also an unworthy sinner saved by god's grace in fact when it says that mary found grace in the eyes of god Right, that's that's or found favor. That word is grace. She just found grace. Mary's just an unworthy sinner like everybody else, saved by God's grace. Like everybody, every person born up to that time, and every person who's been born afterward. Mary's just a woman. She's blessed in the fact that God has chosen her for this role, but she's just like everybody other, every every other person. Verse verse forty seven. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She's a sinner in need of a Savior. She is not sinless, as Roman Catholic theology falsely teaches. Again, verse 47, she acknowledges the fact she's a sinner who needs a Savior. Mary does not sit at the right hand of Christ as a co-redemptor, a co-redeemer, or as the mediatrix. She's not the mother of all graces. She's not the fourth member of the Godhead. That's utter blasphemy. Listen to me. She's not the queen of heaven. Heaven doesn't have a queen. Heaven has a king. Doesn't have a queen. She's not, quote-unquote, the mother of God in the sense that she passes uh, uh, some of the divine on. Mary doesn't hear anybody's prayers. She's not a perpetual virgin. She conceived other children with her husband Joseph. Matthew 13, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters. Mary doesn't magically appear to people. Mary died just like everybody else died. Mary didn't see herself anything more than a slave, a bond slave of the Lord. Verse 38, what I just read. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In all honesty, Mary would be absolutely appalled by the blasphemous teaching that surrounds her. Because again, verse 47, she knew she was a sinner in need of a Savior. Mary never identifies herself as being the object of adoration, but what she does is she adores and praises her son who happens to be the Savior. So again, Mary worship is nothing more than idolatrous blasphemy. Mary worship is nothing more than idolatrous blasphemy, and very straightforwardly and very simply, it's promoted by a false religious system that dares to pronounce anathema or eternal damnation on anyone who does not believe and accept 
what the Roman Catholic Church teaches concerning marrying, which we don't believe in total full, full stop exclamation point because it's blasphemy. It's not found in the scripture. Draws attention to a mere person versus attention to the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Again, verse 47, my spirit rejoices, has rejoiced in God my Savior. And again, Mary knew that the child she bore in his wo- her womb was divine. She knows that as she's watching her son die. Pain has to be indescribable. And in fact, that's exactly what she was told was going to happen very early on when uh, Christ was first born. Mary and Joseph, as per the law, take her child to the temple. Look over just a, a page or so over into Luke chapter uh, 2. They come and contact there at the temple with an old, devout man who'd been looking for the Messiah. Luke 2, verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Verse 33, his mother and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Verse 34, Simon blessed them and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end of thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let me tell you what, the sword just pierced Mary's heart as she watches her son die there on the cross. Go back to the book of John. John 19 again, 20, verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, But they were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister. Now, according to Matthew 27, uh, Mark 15, Jesus' mother's sister would have been a woman named Salome. She's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That's James and John. She appears elsewhere in the New Testament by uh, that name only in uh, Mark 16.1. She's one of the women who brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus. She appears also in Matthew 20. Uh, again, as the mother of James and John, asking Jesus to grant special places of honor to her sons in the kingdom. They were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we have three women here who are named Mary at the cross. One woman named Salome. And by the way, at the time, Mary's a very common name in the, in the culture. Mary is a, a, just a form of Miriam in the Old Testament. A name That was the name for Moses' sister. And some would consider Miriam, Moses' sister, the greatest woman, uh, the most heroic woman who's ever lived because she's the one who rescued Moses. 
So you have Jesus' mother, you have his mother's sister, against Salome, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, little is known about her. She was the, quote-unquote, the other Mary who kept watching Jesus' tomb with Mary Magdalene in Matthew 27, uh, verse 61. Now, she's one of the women, again, who goes to the tomb at the morning of the resurrection in Matthew 28, 1. She's also one of the women who tried unsuccessfully to uh, persuade the apostles that Christ had risen, Luke 24, verse 10. And she is the, the mother of, uh, of the apostles of James, uh, of uh, uh, the son of Alphaeus. Now, Clopas, the commentators would say, Clopas is a variant of Alphaeus. So James, the son of Alphaeus, was also known as James the Less. You ask, because I, I ask it, you must be asking, how in the world is Clopas a variant of Alphaeus? That's a good question. It is. So I thought, I mean, I thought, you know, how in the world is Peggy a variant of Margaret? Right? Or, or, or Bill a variant of William? Who, who can figure, right? It's another lady here. Standing by the cross, not, not three, four people. That, that's the point of it. There's another person. There's four of them here. Standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, another woman, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary's name suggests she was from the village of Magdala. It's a village on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Tiberias. She, she figures prominently in the accounts of the Christ's resurrection. Luke 20, Matthew 27, Luke 24, so, so on. Luke 8 describes Mary Magdalene as one from whom seven demons had gone out to the ministry of Jesus. There's no reason to identify, identify her as some who have, there's no reason to identify, identify her as the prostitute in, uh, Romans, uh, or in Luke chapter 7. She's the lady who's been set free from seven demons. So you have four women and you have one man. And one man who is found there at the foot of the cross is, is John. He does like what he always does. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the, disciples whom the, the disciple whom the Lord loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. So again, Jesus is dying on the cross. And he's suffering physically, but not just suffering physically. He's about to soon uh, suffer the terror of spiritual suffering, bearing man's sin and uh, absorbing the wrath of God. Yet he's concerned about others. Right? In this moment of great personal anguish, think about yourself when, when you've got some body part that's bothering you or hurting. How much do you think about yourself and shut everything else out about except you because you're the issue because you're in so much pain. He's dying in literally excruciating pain, and he's about to bear the wrath of God, and he knows that's coming, but he's concerned about others, especially his mother. Caesar's standing there at the foot of the cross, and obviously she's in great emotional distress. Again, he's dying. He's about to face the wrath of God, and he cares for her. He's concerned for her. Commends her to John's care. John being the most tenderhearted and faithful of his disciples. Now again, Jesus being very close to death, again, evidently uh, Jesus' uh, stepfather, Joseph, is already dead. The Lord at this moment can't commit uh, the care of his mother to the brothers, the sisters, the half-brothers and half-sisters, uh, because they, at the moment they're not believers. They don't come to faith till after the resurrection, Acts chapter 1. 
So he entrusts her care to John to take care of his mother as her son. Right? A son to a mother. Now, there's nothing in the slightest uh, that is harsh, disrespectful, lacking of affection when he uses the term mother. Because the truth is, while she did give birth to him, or while well, he uses the term for his mother, woman, there's nothing disrespectful in saying woman. It, it is true that he, he, she gave birth to him. But the relationship for a long time has not been mother to son. It's really been woman to savior. Now, the earthly relationship came to an end at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Again, remember they ran out of wine at the wedding feast there in Canaan? And his mother comes to him to solve the problem. John chapter 2, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour's not yet come. All right, well, what, is, what do I have to do with this? My hour's not come. Again, at the death of Jesus on the cross, all earthly ties are ended. All physical ties are ended. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer. Right? Uh, the earthly is done away with. From now on, believers are going to be linked to Christ by a closer bond, by a spiritual relationship. That, that's what the Savior is teaching her, teaching us. That's what he's teaching his mother and his beloved apostle John. He said to his mother, or he said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And again, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. J.C. Ryle makes this comment. He says, I cannot help thinking that even at this awful uh, moment, uh, he would remind her that she must never suffer herself or others to presume on the relationship between her and him or claim, claiming a supernatural honor on the ground of being his mother. Henceforth, she must daily remember that her first aim must to be must to must be to live uh, the life of faith as a believing woman, like all other Christian women. Her blessedness did not consist of being related to Christ according to the flesh, but believing and keeping Christ's word. Ryle says, I firmly believe that even uh, on the cross, Jesus foresaw the future heresy of Mary worship. Therefore, he said, woman, and he did not say to her mother. Uh, again, a, a tremendously important point. Again, if, if we're to make a big deal of the relationship between the mother and son, Jesus would have made a big deal of it, and he would have, all through the New Testament, you would have seen that. Again, all, all Mary worship is just idolatry. It's just absolute false. And what John is doing here is he's showing the compassion of Christ in the midst of this most horrific suffering all the way to the end. The compassion of Christ. The care and the concern that Christ has even in this last moment uh, of his life for others. Because that's exactly what John said back in chapter 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Right? He loved them to the end. So again, the issue here is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on display. He's suffering greatly on a physical level. He's about to suffer spiritually. But that love, that compassion, that sweet affection that he has for others is demonstrated all the way to the end, just moments before he takes his final breath. No personal sorrow, no personal pain could make him forget the love that he has for those who belong to him, especially in the near context, the one who gave his given birth. 
Again, verse 27, he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, at this very moment, some commentators believe that John took her immediately home, uh, that she would not have to see her uh, son, uh, our Lord, dying. Uh, others think that Mary and John stayed there to the bitter end. I would probably find myself in that category. Verse 28, after this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already accomplished in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, said I am thirsty. Now, you cannot underestimate how important those two little words are, after this. After this, after the Lord had commended his mother Mary into John's care, and after this, there is a significant event that John does not record. It's the miraculous darkness that comes upon the uh, the whole scene for three hours. On the cross, Jesus had said seven things. When he's dying there on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. To the believing thief next to him, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he said, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, he said, Behold your mother. So he said these three things before the darkness. And when the darkness came and after the darkness comes, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the darkness, as it's passing away and the light is coming, he, come, he says, I am thirsty. That's the fifth one. He says it's finished, number six. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, seven sayings of Christ from the cross, three before the darkness, the fourth after it or during. Again, verse 28, after this, after giving his mother into the care of John, and after this, after the darkness, knowing that, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Again, that's the fifth saying from the cross. Verse 29, a jar full of wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon the branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, <coughs> he said, it is finished. That's the sixth saying. John doesn't record the seventh. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Now again, John doesn't uh, uh, record the event of the darkness. Matthew does. Matthew 27, verse 45. Uh, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want us to spend some time on this issue of the darkness. Because I think it's very important for us to stand, to understand from our perspective, when the darkness came, that's when God the Father showed up at the cross. God is in the darkness. Because the darkness is used in the Bible to describe divine judgment and the divine presence of God in judgment. And most certainly the people standing around the cross would have at this very moment been struck with absolute terror and fear. Because the holy God is present. Obviously the supernatural event of the darkness, but God, the holy God, is present. Now, historically, many people wrongly believe, in my opinion, that when the darkness comes upon the cross, that's God turning his back on his son. Many people are wrongly believe that the darkness is the absence of God. I think the darkness is the presence of God. 
And I believe that that very moment, no longer are evil men the center stage in the drama at the cross, but now God himself is the main character. God the Father who has arrived in the darkness. He is going to unleash judgment and wrath, divine wrath, eternal wrath. It's going to be poured out upon his dear son, uh, the sinless Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he who knew no sin, the innocent one who stands in the place of the guilty. Because that's the only way for reconciliation to take place. This is God's plan of salvation. The innocent has to assume the guilt of the guilty for reconciliation to occur, for forgiveness to be granted. The innocent one must bear the wrath deserved against sin. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay that penalty. Somebody has to bear the wrath of God against sin for reconciliation and uh, forgiveness to occur, and that's Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to go into it this morning. There's just too much. So Lord willing, we're going to pick it up here next time. All right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we stand uh, before you and look at the text of Scripture here and look at this great event, and we just marvel at how you continue to put Christ on display so that we might see him clear, uh, clearly. The glorious, compassionate Savior who has loved us and loves us to the end. John again puts him on full display here in the text for us to see him, to adore him, to worship him, uh, to grow in our love for him and for you. And I pray, Lord, that's true in all of our hearts. You're a tremendously gracious God who have offered salvation to men and have offered salvation to men like us. And through this tremendous sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, the sinless one, standing in our place, taking the wrath that is due us because of our sin. With the hymn writer we say, when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die, scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin, then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God of thee, how great thou art. You are a great God. We serve a great Christ. And we have a great salvation, and we're thankful for that. And now we have an opportunity by way of command of the Scripture, command of the Savior, to remember him by taking the Lord's Supper together. And we pray, Lord, your blessing on our uh, time together in, in, the, in the Lord's Supper. And we pray, Lord, that you continue to take your word and impress it upon our heart. And may your word transform and change our life, I pray in Christ's name, amen. In your bulletin, you'll find the songs that we use for the Lord's Supper. You, you know the story, uh, uh, familiar enough, I think, that the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed, he took the last Passover meal that, an instant that, that was ever carried out, the last legitimate one, and he turned it into the first Lord's Supper. Instead of remembering God's deliverance, physical deliverance from Egypt, he says, now we're going to remember what I'm going to do for you in deliverance from sin. Matthew 26, 26, the eating Jesus took bread after blessing it, he broke it, gave it.